Well, good morning. How is everyone? Can you hear me okay? I feel like uh, I'm coming through pretty good this morning, so. So well, it was nice while it lasted. No. Before I get going, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and dismiss our, our children through fifth grade to Children's Church and like to turn our attention to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Before we jump in, just had a couple real quick announcements I wanted to make. Uh, first off, um, uh, something that I've been thinking on, praying on over the last few days and a couple of weeks actually uh, it involves your minister being out and about. Uh, with my physical health and some issues I've had personal, uh, if you feel like over the last few months you've maybe missed me, want me to drop by and see you, uh, you'd like a visit from me, please let me know. Um, my goal is to be a traveling minister, and I want to make sure that nobody is, uh, feels left out of that. So I uh, wanted to touch base with you on that. Also, this morning, I wanted to say thank you to the guys that have been working so hard on the security project. Uh, if you haven't noticed, there's uh, some new cameras out there in the hallway. If, actually, if you haven't noticed, that's a good thing. Um, but I uh, want to thank you guys that have uh, been over here daily or several days this week putting up cameras, TVs. Um, it's really cool. We're... we're uh, We've really got a 21st century thing happening out here in our hallway. So uh, thank you to everyone that's been so hard working on that. We, uh, we've got a good bunch of guys here, wonderful servants' hearts at, at Ferris. So thank you all. Um, Book of Daniel, chapter 5, week 5. And as we get going into this, I have a little bit of a fun fact for you. Do you know how uh, most Detroit patrol officers are able to catch graffiti artists? And the answer to this question is actually quite fascinating. Uh, Detroit, Ann Arbor, probably Kalamazoo, police officers, you know how they're able to catch people who leave graffiti on city property? Well, the answer is quite simple. Uh, you see, they have to catch these people eventually because for these vandals, the writing's on the wall. Is it safe? <laughs> Um, well, we're going to get some chicken wire up here pretty soon. and I do think, you know, it, that's got to at least be in the top five graffiti punchlines ever, right? Um, it's interesting. You know, we tend to think of this word graffiti, picture this word in our mind. We have kind of a 20th, 21st century perspective. And uh, some of these examples uh, that we have have even become icons, though, right? Rather than eyesores. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with Flint, Michigan, the Grand Trunk Western Railroad, which for four decades has read Grand Funk instead of Trunk. I've not seen it myself, just in pictures. Um, what I've heard about Flint, it's kind of like Mexico. If you're going to go there, you know, buy this stuff. But um, too late for that, isn't it? Um, Should have done that one during the Obama administration. Anyway. The Grand Funk Railroad rechristened instead of Trunk, which is somebody's iconic tribute, of course, to the rock band Grand Funk Railroad. Well, just this week I heard is interesting. Someone actually managed to vandalize this railroad again. And uh, they did some spray paint up there. One news source says that someone has attempted to restore the former message because this is so iconic that the word Trunk was changed to Funk. So... I guess when vandals are vandalizing the work of vandals, we've become immune to seeing writing on walls. 
But the practice is nothing new, neither is the presence of graffiti unique to the urban environment. Third world villages worldwide have seen graffiti. One author writes, people were actually scratching their names in plaster a century ago as a visit to uh, many of the old tourist sites confirm. Uh, graffiti would adorn the 18th century lavatories of Paris, medieval churches of Norway, even the ancient walls of Pompeii which was, of course, buried under ash in 8079. So individuals have literally been looking at writing on the wall for centuries. We're just, we're just used to seeing it. Uh, maybe you've experienced this. Today, we may even sit at a railroad crossing and marvel at the talent of a spray paint artist as a train goes whistling by. Sometimes you think, you know, some of these vandals are actually pretty good at what they do, right? They should uh, get a job in graphic design or something. Sometimes we come across a hate group's message scrawled on a bridge. We can't miss that one. One time I pulled up to a stop sign and I saw the word war spray painted at the bottom under stop. And we know what's being communicated sometimes with these messages. When we hear this expression, the writings on the wall, we kind of know the implication. A failure or doom is nigh. There was a May uh, 2016 Washington Post headline which said, Bernie Sanders knows the writing is on the wall. Depending on your politics, Bernie's failure may or may not have been failure for you. Good or bad news, I hear he's coming back. So there's that. One more example. Recently, an article in the Christian Post asked, is the writing on the wall for religious freedom in this country? So for both of these articles with these contexts, an undesired outcome was considered inevitable for the author, wasn't it? When the writing is on the wall, whether it's Rome, whether it's Berlin, Flint, Michigan, the centuries have taught us that the end is near. That's what this saying means. But where did it originate? In the English language, in the early 18th century, we find it in the writings of Jonathan Swift. But interestingly enough, the expression doesn't have roots in modern English. And it actually doesn't carry with it a foreshadowing of doom, at least not for you and me. This morning, as we think of this expression, the writing on the wall, it actually means that for those who trust in God Almighty, he's in control. He's in control. And this is the same point that we've been stressing each week of this Daniel Sermon Plan series. Today, God himself is going to spell this message out for us, quite literally. Open your Bibles, if you would, again to chapter 5 of Daniel. And you're welcome to go ahead and start skimming the chapter, if you haven't read it recently yourself. Very first verse of chapter 5 begins this way, sets the scene for us. Would you read that uh, with me? And we'll get to our uh, highlighted text in a little bit. Verse 1, chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning is the two words at the very beginning of this verse. King Belshazzar. Do you notice that? You notice if you've been present for the last four weeks of this series, there's been a slight change in the cast here, hasn't there? Slight change in the character lineup. Who have we spent so much time discussing in this series? Well, besides Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, right. This dictator, so much of our time has been spent discussing this, this conqueror who ransacked and, if you remember right, brought the rest of our characters from Judah back to Babylon in chapter 1. 
Nebuchadnezzar, uh, God took him in chapter 4 from riches in the palace to rags in the field and back again. Well, he's gone now. Between Daniel chapters 4 and 5, some time has passed, about 20 years. And all that time, Nebuchadnezzar fought against believing that the God of Israel, not the king, was in control. Remember that spiritual battle we kept discussing? Finally, it ended last week. Quoted C.S. Lewis when he said, I, I gave in and admitted that God is God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar finally had that moment of reality. But this sequence of events doesn't seem to matter anymore, and how, how can we tell? Well, look at the king's replacement here. Look what's happening. There's, there's a big old Babylonian drunken revelry taking place here at the palace under Belshazzar. Now, you and I might know some people that engage in, in drunken revelry today. We may know individuals such, like this. Today, they don't call it that. They, they, just, they just think of it as partying. You ever heard that word partying? And it, it, there's no apostrophe, it's partying. Excuse me, there's no G, there's an apostrophe. And what partying really means in the modern sense is, hey, it's been a long week, but the weekend's finally here, so let's all get together and collectively destroy our God-given brain cells and liver and kidneys with bottles, cans, and cases full of the socially acceptable, addictive poison that lowers our inhibitions, makes us say and do incredibly shameful, embarrassing things that we won't remember, puts our lives and friendships and possibly our, even our marriages at stake, and sends us either to sleep or to the toilet among a mountain of empty plastic receptacles and often filthy cigarette butts. Let's totally destroy ourselves, fellow hard workers, after all, they say we deserve to have a good time. <laughs> Don't ask me to repeat that. But since today is St. Patrick's Day, that's exactly what a portion of the world is probably going to be doing. Partying. Destroying themselves physically, mentally, probably socially. Now, partying is absolutely nothing new. It's just that in ancient Babylon, they didn't have the modern Nashville music to go along with it. But what's concerning to us this morning about King Belshazzar isn't merely what verses 4, 1 to 4 have to tell us about uh, his wine. It's the receptacles. It's these empty receptacles that he and his entourage have been using uh, to get it down. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that his king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. You're a film guy like me, you might remember in the, in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a slew of mostly terrible comedy movies made about basically young people getting into trouble, partying when their parents were gone. And one of the better examples from the era, my, my, you might remember, was called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off? I think I saw that thing on beta. There are plenty of others. The idea of the characters in these films was, let's see what we can get away with when nobody's paying attention. We're young people, and that means we're obligated to get into trouble when mom, when dad isn't around. But this was just the movies, and thankfully young people aren't actually ever like that. Don't shatter my hopes. I have preteens. But regardless, too many of us, even adults, think like that when we don't think God is around, right? Maybe when we've put up some kind of a spiritual barrier to keep him out. But King Belshazzar obviously didn't think that this God of Israel could get to him. He could, he could easily mock him, which is what he's doing here in the name of conquest, being at the top of the heap. These drinking vessels from the temple in Jerusalem, let's get them. 
put that socially accepted poison in them and party down. Just to mock Yahweh, the God of Israel, a little more, verse 4, the king thinks, we're going to raise these glasses to whom? Look, at, look in the text with me. The gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, the gods of Babylon, the gods we've made, the gods we've had for ourselves. Daniel 4 ended with Nebuchadnezzar's acceptance, realization of the God of Israel as the Most High, with his praise of the God of Israel as the Most High, and with God the Most High restoring his kingdom. It's an amazing turn of events. But Belshazzar is not picking up from where Nebuchadnezzar left off spiritually. And we find out later in the text, verses 21 to 23, if you want to look there with me. Belshazzar is actually a close relative of Nebuchadnezzar. Scripture translates it father. He was technically a grandson. We know that he was well aware of the events surrounding the elder king, including his losing and regaining the kingdom. And that, he shouldn't, and that he should have taken Nebuchadnezzar's change of heart himself to heart, but he didn't. Twenty years later, and, and you know, all it takes is a generation or two to decide that they're, you know, exactly what they're going to get away with now that dad isn't around, right? Twenty years is a bit of a blink of an eye to the God of Israel, but, but it's a healthy chunk of time when it comes to government and political atmosphere. Twenty years ago... February 1999, President Bill Clinton was acquitted of perjury and obstruction of justice by the United States Senate. At the same time, Texas Governor George W. Bush was preparing to announce his bid for president in the 2000 primaries. In Europe, the euro, a new currency was created, would begin circulating within uh, just a couple of years. Culturally, back in the States, The Matrix was the number one film at the box office. Boy bands, Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC were hot on the music charts, and Cody has all their albums. <laughs> that was her idea. Now, perhaps we're, we're tempted to say that these are somewhat significant, but other than an obvious downward spiral in the quality of pop music, these events from 20 years ago don't exactly scream the writings on the wall, and maybe we wouldn't laugh at a message of certain disaster from 20 years ago if God had allowed it to us the way God allowed it to Nebuchadnezzar. We'd remember he was sovereign. We'd remember the message of impending doom, right? 20 years later, we'd still be faithful. But consider that 20 years ago today, billions of dollars were being spent worldwide on computer software for the Y2K scare. You remember, you remember that in 1999, the Y2K scare? Oh, it rattled Best Buy shoppers all year. Paranoia that the end was near finally settled down and disappeared for good. One author writes, at 4 a.m. on December 31st, 1999, the new year passed on the little island of Fiji, and we discovered that the supposed Y2K bug would not cause impending doom after all. Whew. Now today, we, we, we laugh at Y2K we remember it. The end of the world did not come by what was once an impending threat to anybody. I mean, credit card balances didn't even get wiped clean, you know? And in time, nothing much came of it. it certainly, although the God of Israel was a very real threat, real threat to Babylon, Belshazzar was 20 years later laughing away. Nothing came of him. But the writing was literally going on the wall. So look at verse 5 of the text. Look, look with me what's going on here. 
The party is going on, and quote, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Verse 6 continues, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So while the king was at the height of blasphemy with, these, with his people, praising his false gods using vessels plundered from the Jewish temple, imagining his, his biggest party on earth outweighed some supposed God of heaven, God crashes the party. God crashes the party. Do you think he manages to scare the you-know-where right out of him a little? Belshazzar immediately reacts, just like Nebuchadnezzar once did years ago. He's literally shaking in his boots. I think back to uh, my nephew, who's just a year and a half younger than me. When we were kids, we'd say that to one another. I'm so scared, I'm shaking in my boots. Verse 6 says King's actually doing that here. He's actually doing that. Who does he send in to read the writing on the wall? Not the clowns, but clothes. I used to be a, a, you probably won't be able to believe this, but I used to be a dedicated subscriber of, of one of the greatest magazines ever published. You remember Mad? On the staff page of Mad Magazine, in every issue, the following credit was always given for stories and illustrations. The usual gang of idiots. And you'll know if you've been following Daniel that the king's response to the writing on the wall is calling the usual gang of idiots. Those enchanters, those Chaldeans, the astrologers, the usual pagan gang of occultists that these Babylonian kings have relied upon when they're just certain one god is as good as another. So a terrified Belshazzar brings these guys in, promises to give the one who is able to read the writing gold chains and a promotion. He promises third ruler in the kingdom, verse 7. So the occultists get in there, but they can't understand the writing. And King Belshazzar, at this point, is so upset, he turns colors. He turns colors. One of my children once, uh, I don't remember which one, but uh, that's on tape now that I don't remember which one. Oh, boy. Maybe that's better. Okay. One of them was so successful at throwing a temper tantrum, they had this ability to change colors. You know, right before collapsing from exhaustion. Belshazzar is frustrated because something supernatural is happening that he cannot control. And he should be upset. He's probably also quite drunk. But he's changing colors. The situation is the writings on the wall for him. Now skim with me in the text this next section of Scripture. Verse 10 down to 13. A certain wise voice overtakes the, the situation overtakes the, the drunken revelry. Person that wasn't a part of the party, so she's sober, she can obviously remember 20 years ago. The Bible calls her the queen. We're not sure if it was the wife of Nebuchadnezzar or the mother of Belshazzar. But we do know this person heard the commotion coming from the banquet hall, came down to see what was going on. Immediately, she remembers Daniel as Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand mystic, we might say chief over all the other spiritualists in the kingdom. She remembers Daniel's verse 12. Look at, look at how she describes him. Ex excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. And I'd like to add, of course, that you'll notice it took the woman of the house to set the king in the right direction. Amen. <laughs> I, I could never fancy myself a king of anything, but if I ever was, folks, I wouldn't make it a week without the queen. 
Becky, along with the Holy Spirit, is a major reason I've been able to make it five years in full-time ministry. I'm just throwing that out there. It's true. Sometimes, men, from time to time, we need the queen of the house to say, Honey, there's a reason why you have this gang of idiots you call upon. You're the leader of them all. Maybe I should rephrase that. But Bible puts it this way. Queen says in verse 12, Let Daniel be called. He will show the interpretation. She's a good woman. Verse 10, she notices uh, that he's changed colors here. He says, You've got to calm down. If I had a nickel for every time the woman of the parsonage told this person to calm down, I could successfully finance every structural update needed at, needed at the school building down here. <laughs> Daniel's brought in before the king, verse 13. Belshazzar tells him the story, explains what's going on in the text, saying, I've heard you're the guy, Daniel. You're the man. You're my problem solver, my dream interpreter. Look at verse 16. My offer stands for you as it did for these other guys. Clothing in purple, chain in gold. Third in command, it's all yours. Of course, Daniel wisely turns down these offerings. Uh, one commentator notes, the kingdom wasn't really the king's to give. And let's read through that highlighted text together this morning. Uh, we heard it once earlier. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Verse 20, Daniel continues, But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And, and just go ahead and, and keep skimming the text down through verse 23 there if you would. Because of the king's rebellion against the direction of Nebuchadnezzar, you know the writing seems to have been on that wall long before Daniel could read it at all. We hear a lot these days in the media, in the news, about a different kind of wall, a border wall, don't we? We hear it talked about a lot. And currently, uh, both defenders and opponents have a lot to say about the idea of uh, spending billions of dollars on such a thing. Just, just spend about 45 seconds on social media. And while we're not going to hash out uh, United States border security from the pulpit, you know, it isn't entirely out of place to bring up the idea of a barrier wall as they've been used over time. It's relevant to our story. And only the historically ignorant would say the use of a border wall is a new idea for a nation seeking uh, tighter security. Currently, uh, the longest wall on earth is actually a series of barriers over 13,000 miles worth, built over several hundred years. Construction on this particular wall began almost 200 years before Christ was born, and the fortifications of this wall are so grand, it is said they're even visible from space. The function of this structure was to keep tribes from the north on the outside of it. And can you guess which famous wall I'm referencing? Great Wall of China. The history books say that by the 13th century AD, the Great Wall was so deteriorated, Genghis Khan was able to pass through easily with his men. And most of what we know today as the Great Wall of China was actually reconstructed and reinforced in the mid-1300s. 
Now, we're told that this greatest architectural achievement in human history, as it's called, has cost hundreds of thousands of Chinese lives. So whether the Great Wall of China achieved its purpose for security, I guess depends on which role on the timeline you happen to play. But one thing is for sure, if you're going to build a wall for security, just like if you're going to build a family that has security, you're going to have to keep your eyes on it. Outside the Babylonian palace, as Daniel was preparing to interpret the handwriting on the wall on the inside for Belshazzar, another wall was about to be approached by an enemy of Babylon. Now, theirs was some barrier wall. It, it wasn't the Great Wall of China, but it was considered uh, impenetrable by ancient Greek historians. Herodotus wrote that because of their border wall at the time, Babylon surpassed in wonder any city in the known world. It was the ancient equivalent. Now stay with me. During the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, the city walls of Babylon had been reinforced with barriers as heights of 40 feet tall. Quite impressive for the period and technology. The gate itself at Babylon, extended into the city, was claimed by some to be greater than any of the so-called wonders of the ancient world. But on top of all of this, there was still a little problem for the people of Babylon, and specifically Belshazzar, that fateful night, God crashed the party. Ancient historians tell us there was no one keeping their eyes at the Babylonian gate because the entire city was at the great party, King Belshazzar was throwing inside the palace. You ever heard of someone drinking their life away? Here it is. Babylonian people were doing just that. These are what the secular sources from history say. Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, verse 25, where Daniel begins to read the writing inscribed for the king. Daniel says, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, and parson. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Daniel says to King Belshazzar, reading again each word as well as its meaning. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. This is what he's saying to the king. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We might find it interesting that Daniel interpreted the writing for the king. He never mentions what language these words belong to, so that must not matter. But twice, Daniel mentions here that Belshazzar's days are numbered, that they're brought to an end. And that very night, as the Persians closed in on the supposedly impenetrable gate, Belshazzar and Bible readers everywhere all will understand what the writing on the wall is really all about. One commentator notes, Cyrus the Great, king of Medo-Persia, diverted the river flowing into the city so that his soldiers could enter through the river duct in the barrier wall. This is how we believe they got through. And it's easy to break in somewhere where nobody's looking, right? Look at verses 30 and 31 in our text. See how the story ends. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Sadly, the writing on Belshazzar's Babylonian wall was indeed a message from God that his end was near. 
But for Daniel, who was blessed in the kingdom anyway, look at verse 29. The writing was a promise that not even the world's most fortified barrier could keep out the hand of God. What are we to take today from the message from the fifth chapter of Daniel? There's an obvious one. If, if we're going to throw a party at the palace, leave some guards, right? Duly noted. But this is how I'd like to close our time together this morning. I think sometimes under Almighty God, we get a little too excited about building barriers to keep people out, don't we? And by this, I'm talking about our spiritual lives. I think we're all guilty of hiding ourselves, hiding our favorite sins away from Jesus Christ. I think too many of us isolate a problem, hide away a habit, compromise because of a lifestyle choice or a situation. We hold it back. We need to make it right. But we're like a king over our own kingdom. We're fully aware that God Almighty sits over us at all times, but we're too busy or we're too content or we're too lazy to give Him a hearing to let Him in. What areas do we try to keep from God? Do we ever try to take what is His, like drinking vessels from the temple, say a church, say church service, church position maybe? Do we ever use these holy vessels on Sunday morning or maybe Wednesday evening to make worship about me, the king? From time to time, do we ever decide we're just not going to honor God of Israel the way he deserves? Whether it's during praise and worship or, or it's at the Lord's table in our giving, maybe in our conversations with others, maybe as we conduct church business. This morning, brothers and sisters, I'd like to challenge you with the following. I'd like you to ask yourself, what spiritual wall have I built isolating myself? Where have I been weighed in the balances and found wanting? Because you can run from God, but you can't hide from him. May the gates of our spiritual lives always be open. If we don't keep them open to Jesus, we might see the writing on the wall from his very hand right before he takes away whatever we've built to keep him out. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I thank you today for your word. I thank you, Lord, for these narratives we have. Lord, we, we can learn so much about how holy you are and how much we miss the mark as individuals. When we look at the individuals from Scripture, Lord, I pray that, that we would be more like Nebuchadnezzar throughout our life when he came to the point where he realized who you were who he was 
Lord, that we would, we would lift our, our heads up and we would acknowledge you as maker, Lord over all. Lord, too often in our lives, we, we hide away. We hide ourselves away inside walls that we've built. keep ourselves away from others. Most importantly, we keep ourselves away from you. And Lord, I pray that, that whatever sins we may be dealing with, whatever struggles we have, whatever is keeping us from your holy hand, Lord, I pray you'd come into our lives, you would knock those walls down. Convict us, Lord. Convict us where we fail to give you all the glory and credit. Lord, we know that you cannot be mocked. We know that you love us, you're full of grace for us, but the sins in our lives have to go. Lord, help us not to be people who compromise, people who, who, who laugh at, at uh, what is holy. people that understand that there's a point when time will be up to accept your grace and to draw close to you in this life. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, your design for us. I thank you, Lord, that together we, we can uh, understand more about your plan for our lives for each one of us from your word. I just pray, Lord, that, that you, would, you would reach us where we are and draw us closer to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things, amen.